All right, so tonight uh, we are going to be in the book of Jude, verses 11 through 16. And uh, we, um, I'll bring the text up on the screen here, and uh, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Woe to them. This is, he's, he's picking up kind of mid-paragraph here. He's speaking against false teachers. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Uh, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up their foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about, also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. So I, uh, I enjoy coffee. It's, uh, I like to roast it at home, uh, and, and I like to drink it. It's my favorite thing to do with coffee. And, uh, but I was deeply annoyed. I've, I've been for years for a coffee company that produces a coffee flavor called Sinful Delight. Uh, it's, also, it, it's, it's akin to my annoyance with the question, what's your guilty pleasure? It plays on this concept that if something is enjoyable, simple, and pleasurable, it must be wrong, and the church is probably to blame. But even more, it highlights the, the, the fact that we live in a culture that has forgotten uh, a, a clear definition of sin. Uh, for a while, uh, the, the, you know, the, uh, the, the godless elements of our culture, were uh, their mission was to convince everyone that sin didn't exist. That it was just a culturally constructed relic from the past, and we just need to get rid of it. Uh, but but in in recent years, um, the culture has rediscovered a doctrine of sin, but it, but completely redefined it uh, outside of the scriptures, such that sin is transgressing some sort of uh, social code that is established well, well beyond the bounds of scripture. But uh, uh, but. How we view God's word and sin is incredibly important. And we continue to be instructed by Jude in this letter about false teachers. And so tonight, Jude leads us to consider first uh, the way of false teachers, secondly, the danger of false teachers, and then finally, the end of false teachers. And we'll look at each of those in turn. In verse 11, we are presented with the way of false teachers, and we are given uh, in very quick succession three symbols of wickedness. 
Jude refers to three people from the Old Testament, uh, each who had, since their own time in the scriptures and through Jewish writings by the rabbis, had become symbols of wickedness in their own right. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. The story of Cain is pretty well known. Uh, Cain and Abel were uh, the first children of Adam and Eve. Uh, Cain was jealous of Abel, and uh, from God's warning to Cain in uh, Genesis 4, uh, it seems to be implied that Cain was an evildoer who did not worship God in truth. In the end, Cain, of course, murdered his brother Abel and then offered a relatively lame excuse to God when he was confronted about it. And so as a symbol, the way of Cain is really the way of selfishness, jealousy, hatred, murder, and destruction. To walk in the way of Cain is to conduct one's life accordingly, to live only looking out for number one at the expense of all the other numbers. The story of Balaam is largely known amongst long-time churchgoers, meaning you have to be in church a while to make it to that, that far into the book of Numbers. And it's usually the story about the donkey, is usually what it is. And so um, one of my professors, he was going to preach, he was preaching on the story of, the, of, of, of Balaam and the talking donkey. And, um, and so they, they wanted him uh, to give a church a, a sermon title. And so he, uh, he said, um, and he said he hates give, making sermon titles for sermons, but he said, I'll find the talking donkey. And so, and so, his, and he, so he, was, he was driving up to the church. It said, it said well, we welcome Dr. So-and-so, the talking donkey. <laughs> and he was like, at least they didn't use the King James Version. So, um, But Jude is not interested in the story of the talking donkey. He is, uh, he, is, he is interested in its writer, specifically. Balaam was a Gentile prophet hired by Israel's enemy to prophesy against the people of Israel. Balaam wanted to do it. He made explicitly clear he would love to prophesy against Israel for money. He'd love nothing more, in fact, because he loves money. But he could only speak that which God gave him to speak. He may have been greedy, but he was an honest, greedy prophet. Uh, and so, but that wasn't the error of Balaam. That is not what specifically necessarily Balaam's error here. He was greedy, and he does make reference to greed here. But Balaam's error was uh, specifically how he enticed Israel cunningly to sin against the Lord through sexual immorality and bring punishment upon themselves for violating the covenant. He said, we don't have to get them. We'll just make the Lord punish them by getting them to sin. And notice Jude describes this as abandon themselves to Balaam's error. The verb there means to pour out oneself, that is to dedicate oneself, to, to commit yourself totally to greed or sexual morality or pride. And of course the focus here that he does make clear is on the love of money. 
The third story that he mentions is, uh, is the story of Korah and his rebellion. Korah, in the book of Numbers, uh, rebel, and his sons rebelled against Moses and Aaron uh, based upon the argument that they too were priests and, uh, and had just as much authority as those who had been anointed by God, like the high priest and the prophet. But their lust for authority and power were their undoing as they led others astray and in the end were swallowed up in the, by the earth as judgment from God because to rebel against the authority of Moses was in the end to rebel against the authority of God. And so we see these three symbols of wickedness that are, that are brought before us that are coupled with a sobering progression of three verbs that they contain there that, we, that I mentioned already. The verbs here paint a grim picture of the false teachers. They walked, they abandoned themselves, and they perished. Many walk about in rebellion against God without a, without a thought to what they do. They commit themselves to exploring the benefits and the pleasures of sin and greed and pride. But in the end, they perish ultimately because of their rebellion against God and his word. The way of Cain, the way of Balaam, the way of Korah all end in destruction. This is the picture that Jude gives us to summarize the way of false teachers ends in death. The path of false teachers, though, we must see, as we'll see in a moment, is in some respects alluring at the outset, on its surface. As Jesus said, the, the you know, broad and easy is the way that leads to destruction. It's not hard to get on it. It's not hard to go down that road. But it leads to destruction. But we are meant to look uh, you know, um, not, not only as we look to the past in the Old Testament, we don't look just for those good examples like Abraham, the man of faith, and we, th those are all good. We look for those positive examples. But we're also, the New Testament is clear, to look at the Old Testament for the negative examples, the warnings. And we see those in, in and we have three of those examples brought for us before our eyes in Cain and Balaam and Korah. And this reminds us that what we believe about God and how we act in our daily lives does matter unto the Lord. And we are pressed by these negative examples here to not to find other people that fit them, but to start with ourselves. To examine ourselves because self-examination in the light of warnings from the word of God is something that false teachers do not do. I don't know if you know that, if like, or if, you, if you've noticed that. False teachers don't tend to be in much in the way of self-examination. They are all in on persuasion, but not self-examination before God. We must ask ourselves, if we are starting to walk in the way of Cain, in the way of jealousy and murderous hatred, we must ask ourselves if we're committing ourselves to the error of Balaam, of greed or sexual immorality. We must ask ourselves, are we throwing off the authority of God's word? Either as members 
we're not listening to the elders in the church, if the elders are giving us a warning and a, or an admonishment, or if the elders, as elders, if we ourselves are, are trumpeting ourselves in our own authority on par with or above God's word. We must see that this path, while it may play to our egos and our pet sins, it only leads to pain, sorrow, and death in the end. This brings us to the second point, which is the dangers of false teachers. So we have the way of false teachers in verse 11, but then the danger of false teachers in verses 12 and 13. In these verses, what unfolds in rapid succession are six pictures of warning of the damage that false teachers can do. The threat that they pose to, the, to God's people. And so he describes, he says, they are this, they are this, they are this, they are this. He gives us just rapid fire uh, pictures that, that are coming out. And so he says first that they are hidden reefs, that is concealed rocks under the water that sink unsuspecting ships. And Jude says that these false teachers are shipwrecking the faith of members of the church from the inside out. Because they're right there attending and, 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 and eating with you at your love feasts. Now, what is a love feast, you might ask? Well, uh, from, what, from what we know, the early church uh, would, uh, would often, in, in certain por- at least a certain portion of, uh, of churches in that, ti- in that time, would actually hold communion privately. It was if, okay, we're going to do communion, they would do it in the evening, and it was members only. You could not attend if you were not a member of the church. It was private, and it was actually part of a full meal. And so, um, it, it was. And so, it was actually those meals, which, as, as I mentioned, were closed to the public, um, and, and that fact that they were called love feasts, and that Christians called each other brothers and sisters, that led to this, you know, specious alleg- allegations that Christians were engaged in incestuous relations, uh, which which were used as ex- as reasons to persecute Christians. But Jude's warning here is that the threat is not the outside persecutors, but the threat is coming from uh, the most personal settings of Christian fellowship. And he says also false teachers uh, are those who are, they are shepherds, but they are false shepherds. They're wicked shepherds who are feeding only themselves. Shepherds had a responsibility to feed the flock. But these men who claimed to care for God's people, to know God's truth, only cared about financial gain and satisfying their own desires. In Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 10, the Lord prophesies against Israel's leaders, Israel's elders, for not caring for the flock and instead acting like wolves. And he threatens judgment upon them and actually says, uh, if you want to find the first passage where the Lord says, I am the shepherd... (laughs) <laughs> I will be the shepherd of my people. It's actually not uh, in the Gospel of John. It's in the book of Ezekiel 34, beginning in verse 11. But false teachers, according to Jude, are also like waterless clouds. For people who lived in a desert climate, you got really good at spotting a rain cloud because they didn't come that often. But some clouds look like rain. They feel like rain, but they never drop rain. Proverbs 25, 14 uses this very picture to describe a man who boasts about all the gifts he's going to give, but then he never does. You're like, I know that guy, right? 
Likewise, false teachers promise and they promise and they promise, but they don't deliver. If you'll just do this, this and this, well, then your family will be be intact and you'll be the hero. Or if you just do this, this and this, your life will get better. If you just do this, this and this and just do this and this. And 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 it's just because there's always one more step. There's always one more course to buy. There's always one more purchase to make. They promise rain, but all they can offer you is dry air. False teachers are um, also like fruitless trees, Jude says, in late autumn, a time where they should be well into bearing fruit. And they are, in fact, truly dead, twice dead even, not just once dead. You're real dead if you're twice dead, right? Twice dead, uprooted, done. There is no goodness coming out of them. They are, in fact, under judgment, not unlike the fruitless fig tree that Jesus curses in Mark 11 that withers and dies. False teachers are also like the wild waves of the sea. The ocean was considered the picture of chaos and evil in the ancient world, and the casting of foam of their own shame is part of that analogy or that picture Because if false teachers are like the chaotic and evil ocean, well, then their waves are the filth of their sin coming ashore. And finally, false teachers, he says, are like wandering stars, shooting stars that streak across the night sky and eventually disappear into the darkness of the night. False teachers burn brightly for a time, but in the end, they enter into the judgment of God and are burned up and disappear. And so this brings us to a rather obvious conclusion, but we need to beware of false teachers. But the hard part of figuring out false teachers and to beware of them is that they can seem godly on the outside, on the externals. They can have a form of godliness that will fool you initially. It's hard uh, also because we don't want to become cynical of the leaders of our own church or of, of Christians or Christian leaders that we meet or, or, or learn about you know, online or something like that. We just don't want to become cynical and, and, and mean-spirited towards, uh, towards everyone and dis- distrustful. Uh, but, we, uh, but we have to be on alert for pastors, teachers who direct us away from God's word and, and especially when they, co- they want to commit ourselves to usually to their personality or they want to commit our, co- commit, commit, they steer us away from, our, from the God's word to ourselves, either to them or to ourselves. But it is always away from the word of God. These are men and women who present themselves as truth seekers, as defenders of the faith, as the ones who are really fighting for Christ, who are the upholders of orthodoxy, but in the end are really just fighting for themselves and their brand and just to get a few more followers. There are others who will use uh, their standing um, in their, in their office, um, if they're a pastor, especially to sneak in unbiblical teaching in the midst of relatively biblical teaching. 
and, and the reality here is just that it's hard. This is hard. Vigilance requires that, that pastors, church officers, and church members must evaluate the teaching they receive in light of the Word of God. If something is off, then they need to ask about it, research it, pray about it. This is actually one reason we believe in a plurality of elders in the church. Uh, the, ho the hope is, uh, at least part of the hope, part of the idea, not exclusively, but part of the idea is, you know, you know if, if one of us goes, you know, off the rails, there's, there's others that will call that out. But again, identifying false teachers is not always cut and dry, and not, and, and not, every, you know, and not every person that is in error is a false teacher. That's the other thing that's difficult. Some people are relatively good, but they just have error. That doesn't make them a false teacher. <laughs> so that, that's also difficult. And look, I could, I could stand here and rail for a while about heret obviously heretical churches that are led by men, by men like Kenneth Copeland and Benny Hinn. Right? They're, they're easy, easy targets. But they're, those are not the ones that I'm really that concerned about. Uh, the false, uh, you know, the false teachers that are doing the most damage today in evangelical churches um, are, are not really the word of faith folks. Uh, it's, it's the pastors who are liberalizing their congregations while using conservative theological language. And if you criticize them, they say, oh, I've always believed this. This is biblical. This is this is biblical Christianity. I haven't changed. <laughs> like if I can use your own words to refute you from 10 years ago, you've changed. All right. If you disagree, if you disagree with the things you said, you know, 10 years ago, well, then you've changed. All right. So don't tell me it's consistent. Um, it's uh, pastors who are self-ordained, who embrace heretical theology, but downplay it by appealing to conservative Christian folks through embracing a uh, culture war. And if you criticize those pastors, then they then they say, hey, don't attack us. Don't we have bigger enemies outside the church? What are you defending? You're defending the progressives? It's pastors who teach that we must view our politics through our faith uh, rather than viewing, uh, um, uh, ra rather than, um, uh, 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 sorry, that, that uh, teach us not to view our politics through our faith, but to evaluate our faith by our politics. In the first case, we need to clarify the importance of the scriptures and the need to adhere to them as the standard for faith and life for Christians, no matter what we feel about it. Truth is objective truth whether or not I like it, whether or not I feel bad. God's truth is God's truth. In the second case, we have to say, yes, the church has great and terrible enemies on the church, but their wickedness does not paper over heresy. And so we cannot excuse that. And we do not give it, we do not give it safe quarters. In the third case, we stand firm that while we are indeed proudly American citizens and grateful for the country we have, we yet have a greater citizenship in heaven that supersedes any, any citizenship we have here on earth. We are first and foremost Christians. All of this requires every Christian to be engaged, not with every online trend or the latest scandal in the evangelical church writ large, but really, at the very least, to be engaged with our church, the local church that we belong to, 
to be engaged in the life of the body where we are. For our desire is not to police the internet. Our desire is not to police the things that people are listening to on their own time and their own interests. No desire for that. But rather to care for the church that we are a part of here at Bailey. To care for the church that we are a part of. We're Presbyterian, so we care for the church as, as, also as a Presbyterian. And then we also carry, care about the, church, the state of the church as our denomination because we are the Presbyterian church in America, not the Presbyterian churches in America. And so, we, and, so that's, and so we do care about it on a local and then on a regional and even on a national uh, level as far as our denomination goes. This is why the church spends money to send me to General Assembly every year so, so that I can vote, why I and our, you know, at least one or two ruling elders go to Presbytery and we go and we vote. We take our time to go do that. To be, why? Because it matters. We care for the church and the life of the church, and the doctrine, and the health of the church. But the best thing we can do is for each of us to study and know the gospel itself, to know the scriptures, such that when the falsity or the warping of truth arrive, we can spot it. We can, even if we, uh, even if we, uh, even if we can't articulate it, we have alarm bells going off. We have red flags that are starting to wave. And we're like, I can't quite explain why, but it doesn't feel right. There's something off here. And to, it, because this is the way to steal the church, is for the church to know well her Redeemer, to know the grace of God, and to know the truth of God. This brings us to, finally, to the end of false teachers in verses 14 through 16. And the end of false teachers is, is no surprise. Uh, it's, it is that ungodliness will be punished by God. Ungodliness will be punished by God. What is odd here is that Jude quotes directly from, from 1 Enoch one, chapter 1, verse 9. Okay, I say verse. That's what it, that's 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 how it's broken up. <coughs> First Enoch is a Jewish apocryphal book. It is not part of our scriptures, nor is it a part of the Jewish scriptures. Actually, they call it Jewish apocrypha. It's not actually a part of their Bibles. <coughs> Excuse me. So we've already um, noted uh, several times in Jude that uh, simply quoting, for Jude to quote a text outside of the Bible doesn't mean that he is affirming the whole of that text or saying that First Enoch is inspired by God. Uh, what, but what complicates the matter is that Jude does say that this is prophecy. He says Enoch prophesied, and then he quotes it. Okay, so, you, okay, well, all right, well, that seems a little more, we need to say a little bit more about that. And, uh, and, but to think, so think about this example, though. In John chapter 11, verse 51, the high priest, Caiaphas, who was, in, who was himself an ungodly man, prophesied, John told us, truly, truly prophesied concerning the necessity of Jesus dying to, uh, for the sake of the nation, the sake of his people. Uh, likewise, Balaam, who we've already mentioned, was one who actually prophesied 
blessing over Israel, as recorded in the book of Numbers. These instances do not mean that these men, who were, who were largely, for their part, ungodly men, were always going about giving true prophecy in every instance. It means in that one moment, you had prophecy, and it was affirmed by the rest of God's word that it, as, as such. And so all, this, all that is to say is that Jude's quote of Enoch 1.9 as prophecy applies only to 1 Enoch 1.9. But notice the repetition of that word ungodly in verse 15. The ungodly, the deeds of ungodliness, the ungodly way, the ungodly sinners. You think that he's trying to get a point across. The imagery of uh, God coming with his ten thousands of holy ones is, comes from Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. But here it's not describing a Sinai event where God is coming to give his law to his people, but to bring judgment upon sinners. Jude seems to view this in light of Christ's impending return and, and the final judgment. But the godliness we should take note of here. Judgment falls upon ungodly people for ungodly words and ungodly deeds done in ungodly ways. Ungodliness, in this sense, involves both doctrine and actions. And further, this judgment will be conclusive and final, meaning that even if false teachers should escape the temporal, momentary judgment that they deserve while they're alive or in this earth, because they're running around fleecing people and causing all kinds of problems for the, for, for the church of God. Um, in the end, their judgment will come. We don't need to worry about that. What we can pray for is their repentance. What we can pray for is for people not to be taken in. And so we are, and, and we are taught then by Jude, though, when it comes to false teachers, and, and Paul says as much elsewhere, it's that we do need to, with false teachers, to mark and avoid such men. And he describes them in verse 16. He says they're grumblers. Grumblers takes us back to Israel and uh, how Israel acted out in the wilderness, grumbling, specifically complaining, murmuring about God's provision. He says they are malcontents, or another way to translate it would be fault finders, always finding something you know, wrong in God's provision. But the grumbling and the fault finding have a darker purpose. They serve to dismiss God's word or why one ought to be subject to God's word so that they can pursue their own sinful desires. And I don't know if you've ever talked to someone, and, and I'm, sure, I'm sure we can give examples where we've been guilty of ourselves, where, but someone is just bending over backwards. They're doing backflips and somersaults around the word of God in order to justify not changing what they're doing. And it's, and it's like that, it's, it's that kind of thing, but embraced as a full lifestyle and seeking to bring others into it. That's effectively what makes someone a false teacher. It's someone who wants to, who wants to embrace that and then lead others in the church astray. And he says, they, he says though, they cover it up by being loudmouth boasters and showing favoritism to gain advantage in the church. Now, I, I think 
as many heresies as I could go to or as many individuals I might, might want to point at, and, and I generally try to avoid you know, name-calling or name-dropping uh, um, when it comes to this kind of stuff because I'm less worried about individual persons um, because they come and go. I'm more worried about principles. And, uh, but there is, a, there, there is a, a, a false teacher that I've already mentioned that is a threat to each one of us, and that is ourselves. The theology of self, the exaltation of self. Uh, I, it just, I, I think in our own time, just it seems like that to me as a pastor, and just that is the thing that I can't seem to come back to again and again as the most dangerous thing uh, that, um, that, that is this elevation of the self as the arbiter of truth. And I see this at work in, in different directions that lead people to pr progressive theology that, that, that discards God's word and also a kind of hyper-conservative legalism. Because in the first case, the progressive direction, their signs of true faith are the rejection of biblical sexual norms and, the, and, and, and even the rejection of basic theology of sin and grace. Uh, and that's really just the beginning, the tip of the iceberg on that. But on the second aspect, on the kind of like a hyper-conservative legalism, we see the eschewing of, of Christian character described by the fruit of the Spirit, uh, uh, seasoning our speech with salt and grace and, and kindness, um, and being replaced with a hyper-performative masculinity that takes no prisoners and shows no mercy. It has more to do with the Crusades than with Christ. And one of the things I will say as a pastor that I value the most in seeing in the lives of myself and, 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 and the folks that I pastor is the, the, is the production of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and along, the, along with this, I would add a life of demonstrable repentance and faith. It's usually marked but with humility. These things are utterly antithetical to hyper-progressives or hyper-conservative errors. We live in a wonderful age of information, but it presents a, a, a danger because there's lots of bad information out there, which means the need for our ability to discern is never more needed than today. And so we ought to, ought to I know like um, one of the, uh, C.S. Lewis in his book on, he wrote a book on education, a little book on education called The Abolition of Man. It's very short, it's not long. Um, there's a famous chapter in there called Men Without Chess. But he talks about this approach to ed modern education, which is essentially our modern education system <laughs> um, uh, today. Uh, but um, but it, he, he said the problem with it is that by getting rid of things like virtue, by getting rid of things like honor, we're producing men without chess. But, it, but, it's not but it's not, that's not the only problem. The, the problem is, is that we're producing young people with, who have hard hearts and soft heads. C.S. Lewis wrote that in like, the 40s because <laughs> he saw the textbooks that were coming out and he didn't like he didn't like what he saw he said this is going to have bad effects down the line 
We ought to value what our shepherds teach us locally at the church. And it sounds weird for me to, I feel weird in saying that because it's like, listen to what I'm saying. <laughs> value what I preach. But, but we should. And we should value it more than what uh, our favorite celebrity pastor says. And if we have pastors who, who we otherwise enjoy, but they are indeed false teachers, then we ought to mark them and be careful how we engage with them. Whatever good we may glean from them can likely be found somewhere else. We must not fall into a fearful mindset that, that drives us to become heresy hunters, though, as I mentioned earlier. But we must not commit the opposite error, thinking that it will never happen to us or, that, or, 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 or through the, or the teaching that we enjoy. Maybe the, maybe the other people, but, but, but I'm good. Do we like the teaching that we take in, either at our church or, or, or elsewhere, because it inflames our sense of self-righteousness? I mean, there's times where I've actually had to stop listening to certain like political, conservative, I, I listen to pol conservative political talk stuff, things like that. There's some I had to set, set I just said like, I've, I can't listen to that in them anymore because I can't be angry all the time, you know? And it's just like, and I just, it's not bringing out the fruit of the spirit for me. It's not bringing those things out. And so, it's so we, it, it, so do we like the teaching because it affirms us and says, you're great, don't change, you're awesome. Everyone else is wrong. Does it affirm us and encourage us to pursue our own fleshly designs? Do we like it because it actually illuminates the scriptures, clarifies our view of the Savior, convicts us of our sin, moves us to repentance, and enables us to produce more fruit of the Spirit? Do we love God and our neighbor better because of it, or are we the worse for it? Again, it's not easy. It's not easy. It's easy to make lists and be like, don't listen to that guy. Don't listen to that person. Don't listen to that ministry. Don't listen to that. I don't care really about lists. As elders, we must be faithful to our charge to shepherd our people well, to love them well. And as Christians, let us be diligent, faithful, charitable and repentant in a world in in this world of sin and brokenness and depravity but as we follow our lord as we follow our savior and as we support the purity and the peace of the church let's pray heavenly father we thank you that you give us your word and father there is it's hard we live in a dark world, and church has real enemies. And there are real problems out there. And we're not always sure what to do about them. And there's so much information out there, and there are so many, uh, so many people saying, I have the answer. And Father, we pray that you would just help us to start with ourselves, to evaluate ourselves. And, what is, and, and, and asking ourselves, what are, what are we taking in? What are we receiving? What is the teaching that we're receiving? Where is it coming from? And are we elevating it beyond the teaching of our own church, our own, uh, our, that is coming from the, the, the church that we are a part of? 
We pray that you would give us discerning minds, Lord, not to eschew everything, but, Father, to be able to chew the meat and spit out the bones, but then also to recognize when things are just too bony and they're not of benefit to us. To, as Paul says, to recognize that, that all things are permissible, but not everything is beneficial. But in all these things, Father, we pray that we would indeed continue to increase in the bearing of the fruit of your, of your Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. That the people may look at how we love one another and give you praise. That they may look at how we live in honest, with honesty, integrity, and hard work. That we live as people who are generous and kind, who, who protect, and that we use our strength to care and support and to fight against evil. Lord, they would look to the church and look to the Christians and find, and find there a, not a, a wonderful people, but a great Savior who has redeemed sinners and made them saints. And may they find a humble people there, lifting their hands in praise as we continue to wait for the consummation of your glorious kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.